Welcome to an episode of Now You Know, a Beacon newspaper podcast highlighting the news and newsmakers of the West Volusia community. I'm Beacon reporter Noah Hertz, and today I'm joined by two professors with extensive experience teaching topics that are heavily contested in the state of Florida. My guests today are Dr. Kathleen Nigro and Dr. Melinda Hall. Dr. Nigro is a retired gender studies professor who spent 20 years teaching English and gender studies at the University of Missouri as the director of the school's gender studies program until she retired in 2019. As a researcher, Nigro has focused on the Civil War era, women in Missouri, as well as gender and young adult literature. And nowadays, she lives in Daytona Beach. I'm also joined by Dr. Hall, who is an associate professor and the chair of the philosophy department at Stetson University right here in DeLand. She teaches courses in gender studies, ethics, feminism, and, of course, philosophy. Uh, First, I want to thank both of you very much for joining me here today. Before we get into the main discussion that we're here to have, I want to give you guys an opportunity to introduce yourselves a little bit. I know I oversimplified your CVs a little bit, so if each of you want to tell me a little bit and tell the audience a little bit about uh, who you are and why you have a, a dog in this conversation about these topics. Uh, Sure, I'd be glad to start. I'm Dr. Melinda Hall, and I've been at Stetson University since 2013, so I'm coming up on my 10th year. And I've always taught classes that had particular political valences or engagements because a lot of my work in teaching I see as defamiliarizing, taking what we take to be common sense or familiar and asking ourselves critical questions about it. My PhD is in philosophy, and I've always been interested in emerging technology and power dynamics and all kinds of things that sort of inevitably lead you to that nugget mm-hmm. of worry. How is the world constructed? How should we think about it? Are there opportunities for change? And that sort of thing tends to be um, exciting for teaching, but also uh, risky for everybody involved. Um, engagements that ask you to to uh, ask some scary questions sometimes, but yeah. good ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Dr. Kathleen Butterly Nigro. Uh, it's the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And I would say that it is an urban school that was very close to Ferguson, Missouri. I think a lot of you may know about uh, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson and uh, the fact that I was involved in gender studies, and because it's a 20-year, I go back about 20 years, I actually saw the evolution of gender studies when we actually thought about the name gender studies and why should we call it that. And just to clarify, in case it doesn't come up, uh, we study gender, which is the way people perform and behave. We also look at what we call race and why race is not an actual thing, but a social construct and also socio economic class. So when you teach in an urban environment, and even maybe if you teach in a... Uh, any type of environment, I have to agree with Melinda that these are things we don't really question because we've become so accustomed to them. So we ask the questions about why and what is the power and why is there power and why is there oppression? And even though it might be a scary conversation, knowing the why is a very important part of how we live our lives. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think the the goal today, I want to structure our conversation as kind of a roundtable discussion about these topics, gender studies, critical race theory, that are 
that you two are very knowledgeable about, and especially since, as we're recording this episode right now, there are, there's a bill moving through the Florida legislature that, at least in public universities, would ban majors that involve gender studies and critical race theory, especially. So there's a lot of bluster about these subjects, and especially critical race theory, but I think by and large, people would benefit from a bit of explanation, not only about what these are, but about why people learn about them, why people teach them, and then how they can be beneficial for explaining things in the world around us. Absolutely. I'd be happy to address that a little bit because I do directly teach these topics in my classes, including the semester in feminist philosophy. And it's a bit of an uncanny situation because as this, the legality of these topics is being debated, I flag that for my students and they kind of are waiting to hear what is in this topic that draws that kind of disapprobation <laughs> and the and they keep waiting because what we're talking about doesn't seem tremendously controversial at least to them yeah. uh, so i will say that when we um, deal with these topics oftentimes my students say oh is is that it uh, so critical uh, race theory is one lens on which to uh, engage the world through which to engage the world and you want to look around and theories sort of get weighed and and thought about in terms of how much they illuminate or if they're explanatory if they have explanatory value and to have explanatory value means that you learn something from them. Oh, I've never seen it that way before. Or, oh, wow, that really helps me explain to myself all these phenomena that I've been experiencing as a person. Mm -hmm. So when I teach critical race theory, um, I teach it by uh, directly assigning the reading of Kimberly Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. And she talks about intersectionality. And she talks about the law and how the law systematically privileges some groups and disprivileges others, even if it's not overtly seen as racist. So it's quite actually straightforward within the concepts that I teach in my uh, seminar style course. And we say, OK, what is this concept? Just like we might say, what is epistemic privilege or what does it mean um, to talk about um, ontology? So I say, OK, Kimberly Crenshaw introduces intersectionality to suggest that some people are put at disadvantage by certain legal situations. And then we look for examples of that. And, you know, that's how we attend to it. Yeah. That, and that's a that's a good point, because I, I wanted to ask, and you kind of touched on it already, like, what really is critical race theory? Because it, it gets thrown around a lot. Right. And, and, and a couple of things that Melinda said I really want to emphasize. One is the notion of a lens. Mm -hmm. And when we look at different theories, we look at things through different lenses. So I would tell my students, it's just as though you went in the optometrist's office and you try on different frames. And when you try on that frame, you see, you look at this and you try on this frame and you look at that. And, you know, when we put all those things together, all those visions together, that's where intersectionality comes uh, comes in. It's not just, are you oppressed or are you not oppressed? It's all the different systems in our society, how do they act on the individual life and on the lived experience of people? But critical race theory, even though both Melinda and I teach it, because I teach feminist theory, we teach it as a legal term. It has nothing to do with anybody telling a child that they should feel guilty yeah. because of their skin color and because someone has a different skin color. It is purely an examination of the legal system and how some people are privileged and some people are not. And that's why I scream all the time at the television. Well, you, can, you know, 
this is the kind of screaming I do, but I scream at the television because people talk about CRT and that is not what it is. And so to banish it from discussions is doing a disservice to the freedom of people to learn about the way our society is structured. I That's exactly right. And I just want to add that I was talking with someone about this just a couple weeks ago, and I just said offhandedly, and then I realized that I deeply, deeply believe this is true, that I'm terribly irritated by the attempt to, and it's pretty ironic, politicize my teaching and learning space. <laughs> I want to teach and learn in and from a space of freedom. And that uh, involves being able to carefully weigh different ideas against each other. And if someone tells me that I can't touch an idea that I previously found useful, that's going to be extremely frustrating. Um, anyway, that is sort of not central to our answering the question of what CRT is, but I wanted to add it to what you were saying that to me, the questions are very straightforward. It has nothing to do uh, with young children. Um, and it is frustrating to see people free associate with terminology that you know has a definition yeah. <laughs> that you teach in your classroom. <laughs> and, and say it in error, but with no doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what makes it difficult, Noah, right, for us to uh, advance a conversation because when I hear people talking about it and I, you know, because I'm out, not in the classroom anymore, I always will say to someone in innocence, could you just tell me what you think critical race theory is? So we're starting from the same place and never has anyone really understood that concept, but are very willing to reject it. So that I think is a core problem with with our landscape right now about discussion. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to come back to that, but I want to p- hit another couple of terms here that we've been throwing around because I think they'll lend themselves to the discussion about gender studies as well. You said you mentioned intersectionality, you mentioned privilege and systems. And I know a big talking point surrounding critical race theory, especially is like you said, the conversation about making kids feel guilty and about, well, by recognizing systemic issues, systemic oppression and oppression is another word that gets bandied around a lot too. But you, there's, there's fear, I think from some people that by explaining that, you know, the people who made certain laws that disproportionately affected people of color were white. Therefore, you, white student, should feel responsible, should feel guilty. I mean, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb here and figure that that's probably not the case in a lot of places. But talk about that a little bit, because I know that is that's a fairly genuine concern that I think people do have about these fields. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, again, I'm going to use this word again, ironic. <laughs> it's ironic for me to say, please don't politicize my teaching and learning space because I think that uh, things are political, you know, that we need to address politics and that teaching and learning already is political. We're in a space, you know, so it's ironic for me to say, please stay away from from my classroom with your politics. Uh, In the same way, I want to say there's irony here um, with you when you think about uh, this systems being a way to point to somebody individual and say, hey, you're bad. It's deeply ironic because In theory or in the history of these academic conversations, it was meant to go beyond conversations about individual hearts and minds and culpability Mm -hmm. around race and racism and speak more tightly about um, implications of legal circumstances that are sometimes um, the 
uh, sediment of a lot of years and a lot of communities that we need to attend to because they have uh, begun to have deep impacts. So if you think about redlining, uh, which is practices of refusing insurance, um, if you think about uh, mortgage companies refusing mortgages and things like that, actually, it's all connected there. Um, then what we're saying is, hey, you know what we need to notice? We may not have anyone with their heart and mind tightly focused on harming people, but we have harmed somebody. We have a set of practices that are larger than any one person that need to be worked on or amended. So to me, when people talk about systems, mm -hmm. they are indicating a willingness to consider prejudicial impact or differential impact that goes far beyond. There's no need to say, oh, you are responsible. You, you are bad yeah. because we've we've moved to a different level of analysis. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's deeply ironic when somebody says, oh, this is about placing blame. Mm -hmm. Actually, of course, we all are responsible for our shared environment, but it's not going to be about the same way that previous discussions were. How can I persuade you to be less prejudicial with respect to race, because I want to attack racism as a personal issue, yeah. these systems discussions are supposed to be about large processes and sedimentation of practices mm -hmm. that no one person is directly responsible and for. And things we largely, like you said, Dr. Nigra, things we don't question a lot. But a couple of things you said are really important, and one of them is fear. <laughs> and sometimes talking about the systems in my classroom I found was more helpful and then to kind of you know deduce into the individual individual experience because I make it clear for example if we talk about the church I will say this is not your faith we are not talking about your faith and nobody is questioning your faith we're talking about how the institution has been run right and I also think we need to give people more credit uh, and children more credit and uh, for being open-minded. And, you know, if people feel, well, you know, they can't handle that. And, you know, it, it's, you know, because I'm a lot older than both of you, you know, Bambi, like no one's supposed to see Bambi because, you know, it's traumatizing. I never felt that way when I saw that movie. You know, I think we need to trust children to be open-minded and open-hearted. And, you know, if someone says, well, they really can't handle that, I said, you say it's not appropriate to tell them the truth. Why is it appropriate to lie exactly. to somebody, right? This has nothing to do with something you've done, but you also use the word, I think you use the word responsibility, that you're not personally responsible, but we are responsible to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in philosophy, we make a distinction between a sort of forward-looking responsibility, which is a form of accountability, and liability responsibility, which is a sort of looking backward. Mm -hmm. And so Iris Marian Young and other feminist philosophers have suggested that it's when you look at big collective problems, forward-looking responsibility is the way to go. The point is, what are you going to do next now that you know that there's systematic disadvantage. And so you asked for some definitions. And I mean, I think we've done some work on systems now. Mm -hmm. We talk about institutions. We talk about structures, processes, or implications of laws. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do those laws impact real folks, real people that you know? Mm -hmm. And then what, are, what can we do next to reduce the differential impact? And intersectionality is the other definition that you were looking for. And intersectionality is a way to track those impacts a little bit more tightly. Mm -hmm. And it's um, actually 
reasonably straightforward. It sounds heady, yes. but it's it's reasonably straightforward. It says nobody's just one piece of their identity. Mm-hmm. You're never just male or just disabled or just uh, socioeconomically in a lower uh, income bracket. Mm-hmm. You're always multiple things at once, which means that any story we tell about oppression is going to be complex. Otherwise, it misses stuff. Gotcha. So intersectionality says, let's not miss that if you're disabled, you also have a gender. Mm-hmm. And so ableism is going to be mixed in with other sorts of impacts. Yeah. Um, and so it's a way of looking at the systems very thoughtfully without publishing misleading statistics. So I always tell my students about intersectionality the following. We can gather information about the um, experience of women on Stetson's campus, but who is just a woman? What color are they? Mm -hmm. What color do you assume they are when you look at the statistic about women at Stetson's campus? Intersectionality tells us you better include race because otherwise you're just assuming. So you got to make your statistics less misleading. But anyway, I think that we're going a really good distance toward explaining some of these concepts. And the idea I don't think is about blaming anyone in particular and saying, wow, you're you're quite bad, actually. You don't deserve to be in our community. <laughs> it's it's more of a calling in yeah. where you say accountability forward looking. We can notice things and we can make change. Mm-hmm. That is a really good discussion. I am familiar with her work, but not those terms. So I'm learning something and that's fabulous. But the other thing I want to say too, is to return to fear, you know, that someone's going to feel blamed. There's also another fear, the fear that the rights pie is finite. Mm -hmm. The rights pie is not finite. If we give other people rights, I'm not, it's not, you're going to take my piece of the pie. You know, it's not that. And, and I think if we start to see the world that there's rights for everybody. Um, I hope you won't mind me saying now, no, and tell me if we want to talk about this later. It just seems like what we're talking about today is always at the forefront. Why do we care as much about food deserts or environmental racism where people are forced to live near unhealthy? That's what that means, that people are forced to live near unhealthy places or that people have to go to the gas station for food. Why aren't we as passionate about that? I think that's something we have to talk about. Why aren't we as passionate about it, that as we are about the things we're talking about today? So we'll we'll come back to this stuff for sure as we work through. But um, but I, I also want to touch on gender studies, too, because this is another discipline that both of you have pretty extensive experience with. And it's maybe not as much as CRT, but it's something that is explicitly being targeted by the state of Florida right now. So talk to me a little about what gender studies is and why is it an important educational discipline to you guys? Um, So I have been involved with gender studies since my arrival at Stetson in 2013 in different guises. I led the program for two years. At Stetson, it's interdisciplinary and it's a minor. We have about 40 programs in the College of Arts and Sciences and gender studies is one. So no one leaves Stetson just having done gender studies. They must have a major as well, but it is a very important part of our curriculum. So I want to make a couple points about it. And one of them calls back to something that Kathleen said earlier. First of all, gender studies at Stetson is actually pretty old. It's been around for about 35 years, which in the in the scheme of what's said about gender studies, that it's kind of fly by night or brand new or 
or like some kind of weird Frankensteinian progressive discourse that's sort of coming out of nowhere. Um, it has a long history at Stetson University. It was collaboratively, collaboratively created by faculty mm-hmm. who very thoughtfully chose to call it gender studies rather than women's studies mm-hmm. when it wasn't very common to do that. And the reason why they did that from the beginning was to indicate that it's not just women's gender that we're interested in. Gender is um, a signal about how we live together. It's a lens, again, through which we can study the world. And many or multiple ways of addressing that can arise. And men um, are just as much of interest in and through a gender lens as women are. Um, And of course, we want to engage a variety of different ways of thinking and living about and around gender. And so um, gender studies at Stetson is a way of looking at the world. (laughs) It would be a statement if we decided not to have gender studies at a university that was focused on the liberal arts and promoting the idea that we're making our students global citizens. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have gender studies, we'd be making a big claim that you don't need to know anything about gender to be a global citizen. And that would be weird. Uh, I'll just add a few things to that. I actually, when I finished my PhD, which is in American literature, I went back to school and got a graduate degree in gender studies. And I realized how fundamental it is to all the other disciplines. When we talk about gender studies, we talk about what is gender and is gender really the boxes we've created or might there be other places along the spectrum where other people might see themselves represented. Mm-hmm. That's a re- uh, And as I said before, we also look at race. I have big air quotes around that word because I don't use that word myself in the classroom, but it's a word we know. And also, as I said, so- socioeconomic class. But here's how it's valuable and why everyone should have a gender studies certificate. So let's say you're in the STEM disciplines. And you only see a certain sex of person represented. In other words, a biological sex. Okay. And let's say it's, it's overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. Will you feel like that's some, someplace you don't belong? So if you had a gender studies certificate, you would understand that's a power dynamic. And it's a cultural construct. And that's a reason why you might see more men than women, but it does it. But if because you have a gender studies certificate, you know the reasons why it is that way. And so it opens up the door to understand the power dynamics that have kept some people in some fields, some people being more successful than other people, some disciplines being considered more important than other disciplines. So that's a very important reason why I honestly believe that a gender studies class, even if you don't get a certificate, a gender studies class opens your eyes to how all the disciplines have worked. And I think each of you kind of gestured at this. You said it's very interdisciplinary, that it it interacts with a lot of different things. Can you talk a little bit bit more about that, about how, how... gender can be used as a lens to kind of interact with other disciplines and studies. Absolutely. Um, So my PhD, like I mentioned earlier, is in philosophy, and there is a subfield of philosophy called feminist philosophy that becomes part of the larger parade of what gender studies is. Um, Kathleen mentioned that she did do graduate work in gender studies directly, and some folks do that. But many people who teach, research, and work uh, in gender studies have their training 
in a different field uh, because there are a variety of ways in which we can progress the conversation. If the question is, how does gender matter to our world? Oh, one quick answer that could be is, if somebody's banning it, it probably matters. Uh, But if the question is, how is gender important to our world, then each field has something to contribute. Um, If you work in statistics, you can engage gender studies. If you work in math and so on. Um, And so just as sort of a fact of the matter, like descriptively, gender studies is interdisciplinary. Like the people who work, research, and build those programs are going to have interdisciplinary expertise. And then I think what in philosophy we say normatively, which just means like not just descriptively, but how it should be. Like people would say, well, it should be interdisciplinary because understanding gender is going to require like a lot of different types of tools because it's so complex. Um, So that's something that I would say about its interdisciplinarity. And uh, I would add in terms of, um, I don't want to use the term that Iris Young used, what was that? Looking backwards? But sometimes, (laughs) because I don't consider it a liability sometimes to rethink history, but I I wanted to show I learned something, but, but, (laughs) but here's the thing. Uh, So as I said, I was an American, I'm an Americanist. And if I had not studied gender studies, Right. I might look like something. I'm going to just give a historical reference. I might look at something like slavery as a monolithic occurrence. But because I've studied gender and I know that Congress did not allow the importation of black bodies into the United States after 1807. I'm not saying there wasn't a market for it. I'm just saying it was a law passed by Congress, all of a sudden women became way more important. Why might that be? Because women could produce more slaves. So without going to discussions of sexuality and sexual behavior, uh, because we only have a certain amount of time and I could go on for quite a while about this, I think it's important to say, oh, that gives us a whole new way to look at something we've always introduced in education as a one word It's no longer one word. It's individual lives lived, determined by who they were and what their bodies were and what sex they were. And that is why another reason it's important. It allows you to do critical thinking about things we have just assumed. And I think, and this is something that I'm sure both of you have heard quite a bit of, but uh, a lot of times gender studies, especially as a field, tends to get considered something that is just it's it's very heady it's uh, progressive indoctrination it's no better than basket weaving you know what i mean it's it's a something that does not really get applied in the real world outside of specific academic instances but what i'm hearing from both of you are instances that are pretty relevant to people's lived experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see my students go into HR, you know, human resources. I see them go into leadership, nonprofits, government work. And I think that when you're considering what kinds of skills will be valuable, Mm -hmm. you should be able to read meaning as an adult. You should be able to engage the world and say to yourself, I know like that's meaningful and, and I can understand why it might be meaningful to someone else in a slightly different way than it is to me. Or I can understand why that's a topic of conversation or why we might need an institutional um, discussion at our company about this matter. And I think that because our culture is descriptively at least partially arranged 
around gender, that the skills that gender studies offers allows you to be really successful. And so I think when I think about whether or not it's heady or if it's applicable, um, yeah, like some of the, or even homogenous, which is another part of what I think you were asking, like the basket, we or the, the part where it's indoctrination. Yes, that's, that's yeah, that the people worry that it's just one perspective and so on. So I think I would like say also to that, that um, actually each and every, so again, I'm teaching feminist philosophy right now, I actually taught it this morning, um, the, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays at Stetson. Uh, we, um, every single reading has brought like a pretty different perspective to the table and a mistake is made if you think like, oh, well, since this again is a reading that I'm doing for feminist philosophy, I bet they'll agree with what we read last week. Not at all. Very hetero, uh, very different from each other. Right. Um, from within. But yeah, I think it's it, it can be heady. You know, this sort of work is difficult to ask yourself questions you've never asked yourself before can sometimes require learning a new word. Yeah. But that is challenging in a meaningful way, not just sort of, you know, oh, we use these big words because they make us happy. It makes us happy to complicate, to to obscure, to be, yeah, to put a label on something. The words are for something to hopefully illuminate or pry open a problem. And so you need some of those new tools. And and again, I don't think it's a homogenous arena. I think that there's tons and tons of different voices saying different things and that the meaningfulness of it it is deeply applicable to our culture because actually the case that gender matters in our culture. And so it's deeply applicable. And I don't understand why it's called indoctrination. That's a very political term. That's a harmful term. Why is gender studies indoctrination? In what what, what am I trying to indoctrinate? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's the, op- again, if we were to remove gender studies from the curriculum, mm-hmm. the way that it looks like public institutions in Florida might be required to do, mm-hmm. talk about indoctrination. You're telling me I can't ask a question that's important to me? Mm-hmm. You t- you're telling me I can't in- ask my students about a whole arena mm-hmm. that to remove an arena of the freedom of teaching and learning mm-hmm. is far more indoctrinating mm-hmm. than anything offered within the space of a classroom. And the other thing I want to say that I think gender studies do- does, the function it performs is that it creates empathy. Mm-hmm. The reason I told you the story about the historical story. And I said that historical story about how you'll see something differently from the way you saw it before because you understand it better is because when you see other people as people, it creates empathy for them. Don't we want people to feel that way? I, You know, that's just the way I've always addressed it. And it's not a matter of saying, I'm not trying to change your political beliefs or change your faith or change. I just want you to understand how people live their lives. And it may not be the same way that you do. Right. But just try to understand the way things have worked systematically, we could say, you know, or systemically might be a better word. Of course, I want you to understand that. Of course, I want you to understand how I never worried about where my children went to school, if they would have everything they needed. And other people don't have that luxury. You know, I think those are important things to realize about people's lived experience. And I think everyone in this room would agree that even if we've had those privileges, being an ally is... it's just essential to trying to make the world a better place. Is that's I hope that that's okay to say that. <laughs> no, I, would, I, would. I think 
people people listening who might be a little less familiar with some of the terms or who are who are hearing some of the terms used academically that they might not be used to hearing in this context will notice that the two of you aren't using gender and sex interchangeably. Could we address a little bit about the differences between gender and sex? Because I mean, it's a very common, it's a very common thing you hear nowadays, especially that well, there there are only two genders, there are only two sexes. That's another thing that the state of Florida is uh, banning conversations about, especially in the K through twelve public school area, is conversations about gender and sexuality. So can we talk a little bit about what gender even is? Absolutely. So we uh, do this in a few of my different courses. So my main area of expertise in philosophy is bioethics, and it's very deeply relevant to bioethics to talk about gender and sex and to discuss intersex uh, conditions and uh, also trans experiences in medicine. So it comes up in a variety of ways, and it's not always clear. And I think I can say a little bit about why. Uh, The feminist project in the 60s and 70s was very focused on disentangling sex and gender because there and and creating a space to talk about gender, but for a very specific reason, because uh, Beauvoir, a French feminist and, and other folks were noticing that sex was treated as destiny and they wanted more freedom. And they labeled that space of freedom like the gender space, like that there's this space of choice or there's a space of freedom and there are these options and we need to prize apart sex and gender because somebody can look at my body, know me or something like that and and know about what sometimes gets called facticity and what people might say is just like, oh, common sense. I I know what you are, like you're male or you're female or something like that. Like lay people might say something like, or just anyone might say, oh, I see you, so I know what you are. And Beauvoir said, hold on a second. You don't know my freedom. You don't know who I might be. You don't know my destiny on that basis. And I wanna name this whole malleable area of all the ways we could behave Mm -hmm. gender and talk about how it could be like slightly different. So, but other feminists later on might not have been interested in separating out sex and gender in the same way. They might have other reasons for wondering about what's the difference. But gender initially was supposed to name some sort of set of social conventions. And sex, at least initially, was supposed to name something about your body. Mm-hmm. But sex is pretty complicated too. Yeah. And not in terrifically complicated ways if you look at the whole world of science, but it's pretty complicated. There's like a list of five things, you know, for little, for infant girls that you're supposed to hit if you're biologically considered female in the medical space. There's a list of seven things, you know, it's chromosomal, it's phenotypic, it's your genitals, it's like all these lists um, and the certain size of your genitals and things like that. So sex is pretty complicated too, but we're supposed, I think we're supposed to be convinced in some way, and this is all part of the questioning space of gender studies, Mm -hmm. that sex is something about the body and gender something about society. And then people have all kinds of worries and what does this mean? And and that's the cool part of gender studies is to say, yeah, what's up? What does it mean? (laughs) Right. And and I I think what Melinda said is really key that Generally, we we probably do consider sex to be biological. In other words, to somehow be tied to the body and gender being performative, how you perceive yourself to be, how you behave. But here's to me something I thought about this morning was a lot of gender 
is what people expect us to be. That's, I think, where the fear comes in, that Melinda is entirely correct. It is complicated. You know, uh, as our knowledge of science grows, so does our understanding of the complexity of nature and how infinite the combinations are, right? So if people have insisted, and when I say people, this isn't a conspiracy, it's just over time, people have felt comfortable with a box for women and a box for men. But that doesn't mean those are the only boxes that there are, right? And as our knowledge expands, we have to become more comfortable with understanding not everybody fits into those boxes. And that's, I think when we're saying it's complex and talking about it, it still comes back to, to me, the notion of people not being comfortable that those boxes aren't the only ones there are, you know, and, and um, I think that's, I don't know, no, I wonder whether you were asking us to say, yes, sex is clearly biological and gender is clearly uh, performative, uh, but I think when de Beauvoir wrote The Second Sex, it was to say, wait a minute, no one's really said, what is the second sex? Of course she didn't consider whether there were other sexes. We're talking 1950, I think it was, it was uh, 1950, it was translated. Remember, translations are translations. <laughs> They're not the original. But, you know, we've learned a lot since then. And so because things have changed, we have to help make people feel comfortable with change. That's right. Yeah. And I think that Simone de Beauvoir, this French feminist that both Kathleen and I have mentioned, had feminist purposes for trying to say that sex and gender were two different things and conceptualize. So we talked about using words or using tools to try to see new things about the world. And she was up to those things. And contemporary feminists have other projects and may ask other questions to try to increase the space of freedom mm. and to wonder about the world. And again, it it always feels like, wait a second, does that mean that I don't know yet something very important? Yeah. Maybe, you yeah, know, that's sure. what and that's what teaching and learning is all about, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree that we learn all the time new things scientifically about how our bodies work. And a lot of um, people that I read and assign uh, spend a lot of time carefully thinking through the interaction between the social and the body mm-hmm. and what we do and, you know, uh, power lifting or not, mm-hmm. or eating particular foods or not, and the complications of having a body in a world. You're, both of you were giving a lot of examples too, especially in reference to books that were written 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. These, these are, these are, studies that didn't just kind of come out of the woodwork a few days ago. But if you, a lot of the conversations surrounding gender studies and especially critical race theory that I have heard and that I have kind of read some of suggests that these are, these are very, very recent phenomena and that this kind of came about very recently kind of in line with a lot of more progressive talking points as they've hit more mainstream. But I kind of gather that with both gender studies and critical race theory, this is probably not the case. 
Definitely not. And I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw is widely viewed as being one of the leading luminaries of critical race theory, although she's certainly not the only contributor. And her piece, uh, Mapping the Margins, was, I think, first published in 1998. That explored the concept of intersectionality in 1998. It's 2023, you know? And I mean, I think absolutely, like, gender studies and feminist philosophy has been around for a very long time. I mean, there's no question to me whatsoever that it's not new, but I do think um, Kathleen talked about a conspiracy. Obviously, like, I don't want to, like, suggest... that there is necessarily a conspiracy afoot to undermine gender studies, but I actually do have evidence <laughs> that uh, a couple politically minded folks and, you know, in the context of partisanship more generally and the drive to get votes, that there's been a deliberate association of critical race theory to things that make people uncomfortable. Find these things. Um, I'm happy to to say that one of the individuals who made comments like that is Chris Rufo. Uh, And so he said, you know, I'd like people to associate things that they really don't like with critical race theory. That will be helpful. And that's a political strategy, right? And he's very close with Governor DeSantis. He was recently, as of when we're recording this, made the chair of New College, a public institution, and has been, like you said, very transparent about wanting to associate these things with things that make people uncomfortable. Exactly. And it's not like these tweets have been deleted. I mean, you can find his strategy partially online. You know, that's not his whole strategy, but it's a political, it's a partisanship move. And so I think that, uh, again, it's not conspiratorial to note that uh, it's a strategy for critical race theory to look bad and to look brand new and off the cuff. But it's it's simply not backed up by any facts uh, whatsoever. And wouldn't it be fascinating if I could come to your class and say today is it today uh, and say, but why? Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. too. exactly like why? Why in the last couple of years has this all of a sudden then become such a flashpoint politically? Like, why do we care more now than we did 25 years ago? And like I said before, and you were right to keep us on track, but I do tend to have one of those divergent minds. And I, I know that. But why is this? something that this is going to work. Yeah. You know, if I talk about the food desert, sorry to mention it again, but I talk about that some people can only get food at a gas station. Nah, no one's really going to care about that. But this, now this can earn us some points. Why is that? I, that would be a great thing to ask a classroom. What, what do you think? Who, what is going to be gained? What's the gain? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm really interested in. What do you do you think there's do you think you have an answer to that? Do you think there is something to gain by steering the direction more towards academic disciplines rather than talking about their material effects? Yeah, I do. I think that it that for some reason a fear has been instilled uh, and this is that catalyst or the igniter that is going to keep this fear going. It is, why is it always sexuality that we talk about when we talk about controversy? controversy? Why, why is that? Why does it work so well? What do you think, Melinda? Why do you think it works so well? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, why I think it works so well, definitely the word you used a couple times, fear. Mm-hmm. is definitely there. In-group, out-group thinking is always a really powerful motivator for partisanship. So, um, you know, if you think about like why you vote the way you do or don't vote, um, that often is connected to in-group, out-group. Um, but when I think about the why, I think about 
you know, contrary to probably what some people think about philosophers or gender studies folks, I, I love evidence. <laughs> I love material evidence and to look around the world and, and see things. Um, I think it's quite clear in the case of Chris Rufo what was gained, which is they have completely changed the trajectory of an entire university yeah. in the state of Florida uh, that... Um, that had a different board and a different curriculum and folks graduating with all kinds of different ideas and is now going to be um, less free. And so uh, when I think about people's motivations, I mean, I don't have like the sort of I'm not I don't feel like I can make a lot of remarks uh, about folks' motivations. I do think that some folks just do hold prejudices of various kinds and want control. But we can see what's desired. Higher education is a place of power. I was talking a little bit earlier with Noah before we turned on the mics about um, my work with the Community Education Project, which is a higher education and prison program. And the way that I and my other co-leads think about this is sharing power because Stetson University is a place where you can learn, gain skills, and be certified. And when you get to go there, you get something from it. And it's costly, you know. And so teaching in a prison space allows us to share out that power and change things a little bit. So so universities and colleges are, are places where power is brokered, where things can happen and change and people grow and learn and, and so on. And I think education is always going to be a target for folks who want to be in control. And and you can see what happened. We've got big changes for public universities. And and obviously, I can't affirm any of those things and, and think that they're a problem and, and because they're attacks on freedom and education. The you were talking about education as power and you were you were obviously decrying some of the more recent changes that have happened at schools like New College in Florida where the the institution as it was was gutted by the governor basically and I don't think that's a particularly charged term I think the governor would use that term it was yeah was, they're happy to say yeah, we it, we did this we we repopulated the board but the it, it was a direct reaction in a lot of ways to the the perception correct or incorrect that higher education skews to the left politically now is that is that reductive? Is that a is that an appropriate way of even looking at higher education that it skews one way or the other in a partisan line or definitely not. And I mean, I could say a lot of pretty sardonic things here, <laughs> but like as in uh, there are all kinds of different memes that I've always found hilarious about like, oh, you think I can make my students Marxist? I'm lucky if I can make them do the reading. Like, <laughs> I wish I no, no, but I don't actually wish that I don't actually want to imprint my students with anything, you know, uh, necessarily. I just want them to learn. I think that um, when you um, when you look at the reality of the situation, especially with how diverse universities are in their fields, mm -hmm. there's no lockstep politically. Mm -hmm. I'm the chair of the faculty senate at Stetson University, and it's hard to get consensus on even mundane topics because we <laughs> happily, I shouldn't say happily, we, we energetically disagree with each other. So it's just not my experience. I, I was at Vanderbilt University for my PhD, and it's very, very big, and I didn't see any uh, lockstep there either. None at Stetson. I have never talked about politics in my classroom. The only way I use politics is with a, a lowercase p, that gender studies is a political uh, discipline because it seeks to change the world. 
that's what that word means. But it is not partisan. Yeah. And if people and if people exactly and if people say, well, you're left leaning. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Right. Why do you think that? What is your fear? What does left mean to you? Right. So don't just. That's what we want our students to do. Just don't hear those words and react. Mm -hmm. Have a Pavlovian reaction to these words, and then you don't think about it. Uh, You know, you have to think about why does that bother me? I think it was Judith Lorber who wrote a long time. We're talking decades ago. These women have been writing, and and not only women. I mean, there have been uh, people of all genders who have who have written uh, pieces about what gender studies means or another aspect of gender studies. But I think she said something like, gender is like a fish in water. A fish does not ask about the water it's in. We don't question those things, but what's the danger in it? You know, and that's why we say, well, you know, it's left. That's a dog whistle to me. And that's why I said, what do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, and, and, and I would question someone and say, well, what do you mean by that? What's, what's left? What's the fear? You know, that we're going to build a library because that's a socialist institution. So I mean, is that your fear? I'm going to build a library? You know, uh, but it, words are used to control people sometimes to know a right. And, and, uh, and those are the words I always ask. I said, now, hold on. When you say that word, let's talk about why that's a word that people are afraid of. And it's not easy to be us. I could tell you that right now to be in the classroom, be a lot easier. And I hope math teachers will forgive me, but it's probably a lot easier to teach math. You know, uh, this is a hard subject. It's hard and it's getting harder because, and I was talking to a colleague about this just the other day. I, I can't make a space safe. I've always reacted to that terminology because everybody has their own lives they're living and anything that we do in the classroom could potentially impact them. So I have to be thoughtful about how I teach and care for people as best I can within the space of that challenge. But um, one thing that I've seen is recently that it kind of feels like it doesn't matter how I frame things as much as it used to because people have the statewide political frame that they're mm-hmm. responding to. When you say people, I don't mean S- students. Okay, students. Yeah, because students, when students are in my classroom, they have a little bit more stuff in mind mm-hmm. than they did previously. And it's just a new element to work with. So it's a little bit harder. So I can say things like, yep, you can say, you know, anything within the space of this classroom. And instead of saying, oh, that's so relieving to hear. Mm-hmm. Sometimes now the response is really You know, and so I'm like, yes, really. But then I have to, of course, demonstrate that. And I do, you know, eventually. Uh, But I got a little bit more leeway in the past from students than I do now. And it's okay. I mean, life is hard, you know, and I'm okay with the challenge. I have, um, you know, responsibility as a professor. And if they want me to prove it, that I'm going to let them say things that uh, that might not be they think politically correct, then I'll prove it, you know, but it's okay. Anyway, it's just a little harder than it was before. It it is. And, you know, I want to say that we're not all talk either. You know, for example, one of the things that I think gender studies would be, would be a place where you could see gender studies at work would be one thing we discovered on my campus when I, uh, it has not been very long, was that 25% of our student body was food insecure. Mm-hmm. Now, do you honestly, th- I'm also an English professor, do you honestly think somebody can really be invested in the Scarlet Letter if they don't have food? Yeah. You know, and so a discipline like gender studies would say, how are we going to solve that problem? And immediately, and some very 
wonderful people on our campus, we set up food banks. Mm-hmm. Right. And I will say I was not the leader of that. But the people, you know, of course, I was on board with it. But I want to say it's not only gender studies that takes con- that into consideration, but that there were wonderful people who said we need to address this immediately because it's affecting students and they're not doing well. You know, and, and we we're saying, oh, you don't want to do your reading and you want to complain about your reading. Well, maybe that was a very basic biological need. That was I mean, if we're talking about Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs, that's on the very is on the bottom. Yeah, very bottom. Yeah, you know, very, you know, that people need to have their basic needs met. They have to have enough food if they're going to care about other things mm-hmm. and they're going to evolve as people, right? So I just wanted to make that point that we're not just, yes, we're academics and we love talking about ideas, but we also look at the world in a practical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really important. So I don't want to lead us to one more discussion point if it's too controversial, but this I think is behind a lot of the urgency that's in the partisanship discussion right now. It's quite clear to me that the fear, at least part of it, is coming from uh, fear and or anger and or prejudice with respect to trans folks. So people think that gender studies are a place where we like manufacture transness Mm -hmm. out of nothing. (laughs) And so I just wanted to add that in. I don't think that's true. I wanted to open it as a point of discussion because it's one thing that we haven't mentioned directly, but it drives a lot of the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about sex and gender and so on, I feel like people, if I were to say this just in a bar or restaurant, they'd say, yeah, 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 yeah. But do you think that trans women are women? You know, like that kind of thing. And then it's like, you know, that's where your head is because of the political discourse. That's that's a good point, too. I don't mean to interrupt. Um, I think a lot of people and I think even myself sometimes being less familiar with things like gender studies might think that, all right, I'm time to go to gender studies 101. I'm going to go sit down in my class and we're going to talk for an hour about uh, what is transgender? What is the word transgenderism is thrown around a lot. Like what? Okay, we're going to debate for 90 minutes about whether trans women should be or people who were born a male should be able to play on a sports team of the other thing. But how much of the discussion in a classroom is actually that? So I did have a unit on sex, gender, and sexuality, Mm -hmm. and I included two leading voices Mm -hmm. from uh, discussions of trans experience. One is Talia Mae Betcher, Mm -hmm. and Talia Mae Betcher has been writing on trans experience and is a professor at UCLA and has been doing this since the 90s, Um, you know, this kind of work and this kind of talking. And Amy Marvin, who's actually more of my contemporary, uh, she finished her PhD I don't know, probably a few years after me, I'm not sure exactly when, um, and has written about what is trans philosophy? You know, what does it mean to do philosophy through trans lens? So again, thinking about lenses and theory. So we did definitely talk about like, what is it to think in a trans inclusive way? What does it mean to do feminist theory when all people want to do is talk about whether or not like trans folks should be included. Like this is obviously like important to like the queer community right now, a lot of rifts, a lot of problems. So we definitely did talk about it, but we weren't debating. It's sort of not 90 minutes of pounding away at a particular perspective. I don't know how to how to distinguish between uh, what you described and what I see in my classroom, but essentially we took it as one question among others. Yeah. So uh, we talk a lot about non-Western philosophy mm-hmm. 
and Indian, I assigned several feminists from India. And so we're like, okay, let's talk about what it is to be an Indian feminist. Mm -hmm. And then it's, what is it to be a trans feminist? Yeah. I think that people need to understand what trans means. It is a chemical term. Uh, when the molecules, I am not a scientist, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm just ordering, I'm just telling you where the, the etymology comes from. So when the molecules line up, they're cis, that's C-I-S. So people whose physical body uh, is in alignment with their perception of them as their gender, uh, it's cisgender. When the molecules do not align. It's trans. This is a very natural term, Mm -hmm. right? So as we have variations in nature, we have variations in gender. I understand that talking about trans athletes, and by the way, trans woman is a woman. It is not a change from a man. It is affirming your gender, right? And, And supporting people and affirming their identities is an important thing. So I did want to say that it's not a choice. People think it's, well, someone's going to choose to be the other gender. That is not what trans identity is. Okay. But yes, if we have to have a debate about trans athletes, we can have that debate. I think it's a statistic. It is incredibly small where this actually even arises as a problem, but yet it's taken all the air out of the room of the discussion. I believe the percentage of people who identify as transgender in the state of Florida, it's it's a remarkably small amount of people. Yes. And uh, just a couple of things to say about that. Um, When we're talking about athletes, the number of cases in which trans athletes have it's actually been had a conflict Mm -hmm. is probably even smaller than that but yet it it's in the news it's number one but the other thing too is and this is something also um, talking to a colleague this morning was an important point is if trans identity depends on self-reporting is it safe to report So that's why I agree with you. I think it's good to look at those numbers, but we have to remember we can't really know because there could be some danger. Yeah. And the Trans Day of Visibility was about 10 days ago or a week ago um, at the time of this recording. Mm -hmm. And folks also talked about the difficulty of that. Do you want to be visible in this kind of charged atmosphere? What does it mean to be visible? But I just also want to say I definitely affirm all gender identities in my trans students and my trans colleagues and friends. And I think one of the difficult things, and this is not, gender studies is not the only place where this happens. When I teach bioethics, these things can come up in a variety of ways, but in other classrooms too, we're always thinking how to affirm our students. And I think affirmation is key to political solidarity, but I wanted to raise that In bioethics class, there's this way of treating disabled students as if their lives Mm. are in question, (laughs) whether or not they should exist or on what basis and what rights they should have. And I do everything in my power as a disability justice theorist to say that's not what we're up to today. We'll talk about disability, but I'm not going to call you into question. And so in the feminist philosophy classroom, I try to avoid ever putting somebody's 
sense of self on the line as if that's the topic of the debate. That's not the topic of the debate. When we talk in feminist philosophy, the question is, how can we understand the lives of many people that and the way that they explain themselves? That's the topic. If somebody walks away and says, now I think I understand better what it is to be trans, learning outcome met. You know, but I I really do want to follow up on that, because as I said, you know, uh, a lot of these ways of seeing the world to a to make it accessible to everybody, some of that thinking is new. And uh, we're including people who live those lives in making the decisions about the way things should be. And, uh, you know, there are, I I don't, and I know both of you would agree with me that the word disability has dis built right into it. I mean, the language is difficult. And then, you know, to have to turn somersaults to make it not seem dis gets difficult, right? But uh, when they put in a new path behind my office building at the school, um, I had a zigzag to get to the new student union. I said, well, you know, I've got a zigzag here. And I realized that if someone was in a wheelchair going down that hill, it had to zigzag. And I said, that is great. That is, you know, in other words, that we're paying attention that other people are going to use this path, not just people who are temporarily not disabled. I mean, you know, like I said, it's awkward to say it, but to see that, to see that in in practice, that we're understanding that all kinds of people live in this world. Yeah. And and let's make it a world where they can be comfortable too. And that's the thing. And I think when I think about and I and again I, I brought it up because I know that's what's behind some of the political rhetoric in our state right now and, and these questions about athletics and things like that. But I think for me I would never have a topic be, do trans people exist? They do. <laughs> you, you know, that's not on my syllabus. Does, do, does a trans person exist? Trans people exist. And then what's also not on my syllabus is, should trans folks be included? Because in feminist theory, the point is building coalitions across all difference mm-hmm. towards social change. There's no question for any of us, I think, in this space that we should bring along everybody. Mm-hmm. But the what I want to build capacity for among my students is the capacity to understand other people's lived experience. So nobody has to, you know, be indoctrinated for that to happen. Mm -hmm. It's called learning, (laughs) you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but I do think that it's uh, really um, remarkable Mm -hmm. how all of these topics that we've been talking about have become this tight knot that somehow is connected to voting. Mm -hmm. Like that is, it's a remarkable moment. Mm -hmm. And it's like all of a sudden gender studies is center stage and we're like, whoa, hi, we've been here all along. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> like, <laughs> I think among a lot of people, a lot of these terms, like like you mentioned, transgender, cisgender, a lot of these terms are things that have existed in the academic space for a very long time. That is that is a fact. These are terms that have been used in academic settings for a long time. But as they've become popularized outside of academic spaces, both in somewhat actually what their use is and pejoratively, it it does there's there's fear there and there's there's worry that, oh my God, what is this brand new thing? But it's like you said, you guys have been here the whole time. You're just yeah. turning the lights on, like, what are these people doing in this room? Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, oh hi, you're late to the party. Welcome. Let's talk about the significance yes. of these topics, but don't do so in a way that harms my I think students, in, please. <laughs> this is I can completely understand this fear, and I'm sure you two can as well. There's there's fear that the things you haven't 
question because you thought that they were instrumental to yourself might not necessarily be like I putting a word to something like cisgender I think is scary to a lot of people because that is uh, for a lot of people that's not something they they ever thought about whether it was something they actively chose not to thought about think about or something that they were explicitly told not to think about or question it's it's putting a word to it and I think some people they don't want to be considered cisgender they're just I'm a man I've always been a man I'm not anything I'm not any kind of newfangled language I am just who I am and and that's fine if they wish to see it that way uh, I wouldn't have an argument with it all I'm saying is we use those terms to explain variations in nature yeah that's what it's for it is not a word that gender studies people sat in the basement and said let's scare people with this word you know it wasn't that it was that this is a chemical term that explains variations and if you're not in a variation and you're happy with where you are you have to understand that not everybody lives a life that way right and you know i just believe as gandhi said we must be the change we wish to see in the world and i could live my life very happy happily as an english professor and talk about 19th century literature and um i am uh happen to have white skin and and you know i've got my invisible knapsack of my privileges strapped to my back and you know i can go anywhere and i can drive any car and no one's going to stop me on the road and you know i have all those privileges but that doesn't to me I was raised when you have privilege, you have responsibility. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I just mean, I think that people like gender studies professors have a chance to very diplomatically have people look at the way at what they think and why they think that way. And it doesn't harm them to see things another way. And, you know, I had a, a, an Asian student, um, a lot of Asian students weren't permitted to take my class. We had a, a lot of Asian students and I had a, um, it really gave me a lot to think about. An Asian uh, woman said to me, you know, we talk about you and we think you're very brave. And I said, I, I, I'm not brave. And she said, no, we think you're brave. Mm. So, you know, we have a privilege in this country of having, I, I have to go back to what Melinda said. We have freedom to learn. We have due process. We have freedom of speech. We have these things. Don't take away those rights. Mm-hmm. You know, to take away my right to say to my child, yeah, I read this book and, and I think you'd like this book and it doesn't mean it's going to change your you know sexual orientation. I just think it's a good book. I have a right to tell my child to read that book. You do not have a right to tell me my, I can't tell my child. that he can read that book i'm sure the three of us could uh, i could keep asking you questions for the next two hours but i want to be mindful of our time and kind of as as one more kind of wrap-up question i guess to tie things back to the beginning dr hall you teach at stetson that is a private university dr nigro you are retired now but you taught at a public university when you were teaching the the current bills that are working their way through the florida legislature have been affecting public schools at the k-12 level and public universities but if the bill passes that would that would ban gender studies majors and critical race theory majors from public universities what does that do to the academic space how does academia react to that and what does that look like outside of academia too well it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on all institutions of higher education so i think that stetson university as a private institution is uh very sure 
that it's only a matter of time. <laughs> in other words, uh, we saw the conversation start with K through three, yes. then they go to K through 12, and now it's about just public institutions. Yes. But, And even if there's never any legislation that attempts to infringe on the ability to teach and learn at a private institution, um, we still have to be knowledgeable about and aware of our larger set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I think Stetson uh, has a really strong academic freedom statement. And actually, I wasn't involved in working on it when we developed it. And I'm very proud of that work because it's important to me and important to the university, um, which was taken up by the independent colleges and universities of Florida, ICUF, um, in, uh, with changes uh, and, and used to express the, the position of not just Stetson, but also Rollins and other mm-hmm. private institutions. Yeah. Embry-Riddle. Anyway, we do have a strong statement of academic freedom and we think it applies here. I also think there's an opportunity for us to say, you want to teach and learn in a situation of freedom? Come to Stetson. Mm -hmm. You get to ask any questions here Mm -hmm. without penalty. And that is wonderful. So I think we have an opportunity here, but I think that we have to be thoughtful about how we're responding. It's clear that our students depend on federal and state financial aid, Mm -hmm. and that can be pulled. So we do have to consider real impacts on our students, even if Stetson has privileges. That, just to follow up on that, the important thing, I hope everybody paid attention when uh, Melinda was talking about first it was K through three, and I don't believe sexuality is discussed in K through three, but that was the beginning. Now it's expanded to 12. When you start taking away rights, little by little, people, they become normalized, people become used to it. And then all of a sudden it's your rights that are being curtailed. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to care that somebody believes that talking about these things is not a healthy thing, is not a learning thing. What is so threatening about it? And I just wish people who say, yeah, that's a good idea. I don't want somebody going into the classroom. I think we all need to take a step back and calm down and say, what is so threatening about this? Because when we start winnowing away at people's rights, most people don't care till it's their rights, but sooner or later, it's going to affect everybody. And I want to say that it's pretty scary to me that I would not have a job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if I if I was teaching in the state of Florida and, and Missouri is not dissimilar, uh, all of a sudden this little program, you know that that nobody really took very seriously would all of a sudden be the target. Yeah, and and I'm glad I'm very happy you asked us the question. Yeah, it's so deeply weird. Like I said, I think when I taught Kimberly Crenshaw this semester, I had that moment where I said, if I were at a public institution, what I am going to say next would be, you know, against the rules, illegal, I think I said. You know, with, you know, it's, it's complicated, but essentially I wouldn't be allowed to do this. Uh, and it was deeply uncanny, not just because what I said next was completely unremarkable, <laughs> and, but useful, uh, but also because it just didn't, yeah, it genuinely felt like, could this possibly be real life? But it is. Real life is a good place. For us to end this conversation, yeah. I think no. <laughs> I I can't thank both of you enough for participating in this conversation. I hope for I hope for some people it it raises some questions, answers some questions, and I also think it just kind of gets people thinking about 
maybe what the why we're having these discussions right now in the legislature, why we're having these discussions about public institutions, because it's there's a lot of terms thrown around that, like you said, aren't defined, that aren't that people don't really understand why they're talking about it. So I think this is really valuable. And I thank both of you very much for participating. I think that if a lot if it does raise a lot of questions, I am telling Melinda that we're both happy to come back and answer those questions. So they, right. So it doesn't just go into the void of, well, what about this and what about that? We are very happy to return and uh, clarify and extend the discussion and be very happy to do it. Absolutely. I am in this discussion for the long haul. I'm happy to be a part of this community. I'm happy to receive questions, Um, you know. Happy to live here and and be in community with you all. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Jeff Shepard for our Now You Know Music. Find more podcasts and all the local news you need at www.beacononlinenews.com. The Beacon, here for you.